0: Hello world, welcome to the Political Worldview podcast, December 2nd, 2015, the Russia-Turkey face-off edition. I'm Adam Quinn, Senior Lecturer in International Politics the Political Science and International Studies Department of the University of Birmingham. With me is Scott Lucas, Professor of International Politics and Editor of news and commentary site EA Worldview. How are you doing, Scott?
1: I'm doing very well, Adam. Cristal
0: is still on secondment in New York, but she'll be back with us for a full-length show next week. However, political news waits for nobody, and we figured that you guys might well miss us if we took longer than usual to come out with a new edition, so we decided that while we wait for the whole band to get back together, Scott and I are going to do a mini-episode on this, uh, this important topic. We also have no producer Connor in the room, although he will be producer Connoring uh, once he gets back, so it's an unusually intimate gathering that we've got going on here, Scott, although in an unusually non-intimate room, so if you can imagine two guys with a lot of space uh, in which to stretch out while they make their points, that's, that, that's us right now.
1: It's like political worldview unplugged.
0: That's, uh, that's exactly what I was thinking, you took the words out of my mouth. Okay, onward. On November 24th, Turkish F-16 fighter jets shot down a Russian warplane that the Turkish government said had crossed its border with Syria. The pilot was killed, as subsequently was a Russian Marine sent as part of the mission to rescue him. Russia took this about as well as you might expect, claiming that their plane had remained within Syrian airspace, had deliberately been ambushed by Turkish fighters, and posed no threat to Turkey. President Vladimir Putin called the incident a stab in the back by the accomplices of terrorists and responded with economic sanctions against Turkey. The Turks maintain, however, that the plane was within their airspace, that they had warned the Russian plane multiple times to change course, and that everyone should respect the right of Turkey to defend its borders. These events served to throw a whole bath of cold water over hopes of cooperation between the various external powers opposed to ISIS operating within the Syrian civil war. There had been some more optimism on that front in the aftermath of ISIS's recent attacks uh, against civilians in Paris, and also the bombing of a Russian civilian airliner departing from Egypt. So, so, oh, Scott, uh, with my voice obviously filling with optimism for the future, what a bloody mess. Uh, first things first, Turkey, as uh, regular listeners will no doubt know, is a member of NATO and therefore has collective defence ties with both the United States and with Western Europe. Please start me off with some good news, maybe if you can, by telling me we're not about to end up in World War Three over this, at least.
1: Well... I could do what London's Daily Telegraph did in one of the brilliant reader-baiting moments of the year, where on the day after the Turkish attack, it had two stories at the top of its web page. The first said, why this is not the start of World War III. And the second story said, World War III may be possible... Given surge of tension in region, right? <laughs> so so it's
0: like, this is not the start of World War Three, Or is it? Or
1: is it? Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> so let's resolve. No, it's not the start of World War III. Hooray. I mean, yay. It's all
0: downhill from here, I assume, uh, but we, it, could, we, could, we can say that much, can we? Really easy.
1: Because the, the, the Russians are not going to take military action in response to the Turks. They're not even going to challenge the airspace. They haven't run any planes across that airspace in the last week. Instead, they have made the military step of just ripping the hell out of northwest Syria, opposition-held areas. They're hitting border crossings. They're hitting infrastructure. They're hitting civilian areas as a way of wreaking some type of retribution. So they're taking it out on someone else in the classic style of great power politics. That's the starting point of it. So that's the military point. Then to get it to the political side of this, which is where I think we're going, as to where the politics go now, they're saying to everybody – The Turks are trying to take northwest Syria. They're supporting a minority group called the Turkmen Mm. faction. They are running arms to the Turkmen. They are supporting terrorists. So this is why we have to take action, right? Doing that, they're trying to split Turkey from the U.S., Britain, and France over political issues. That is, we want a political settlement that keeps Assad or the regime in power, the Turks are a problem, which pushed them to the side. This is Russia talking. Yeah, this is Russia talking, uh, not the Americans yet. Yeah, and no,
0: uh, the, the Americans are very much not in favor of keeping Assad in power. Uh,
1: so they say. More on that in just a moment. Uh, what Russia is then doing to bring it around to the Islamic State, which is where they supposedly were getting involved in Syria to beat the Islamic State, is to say, not only are the Turks trying to take part of northwest Syria, the Turks are conspiring with the Islamic State giving them support specifically by helping them trade and move their oil from Hmm. Syria. So this is a grand conspiracy that President Erdogan, the Turkish government, are really behind the Islamic State. They're part of the problem that has to be dealt with.
0: Wow. Well, uh, uh, listeners may not be able to see it, but my head is getting actively closer to my hands while this discussion is going on. Because one of the things that it it really just... As as you'll recall, I've not been super optimistic about the trajectory of the conflict in Syria over our previous discussions and how well it's going to go. This thing's served to underline for me just even more how many dimensions there are to this thing that most of us are unaware of. I mean, I'm paying more attention, I would like to think, to all of this than most people. But when all of this broke out, Suddenly there was a story of how there are these Turkmens in in Syria and they're being supported by Turkey. But while Russia says it's attacking ISIS, it's also bombing these other opposition groups, including these Turkmen uh, um, who are claiming that they're being ethnically cleansed at this point by, by the Russian bombing campaigns. And all of this was entirely below my radar before and reinforces my suspicion that there are probably 101 such uh, unreported at least or at least reports unread by me and many other people situations under the hood of this ostensibly uh, two or three sided civil war just waiting to trip us over right onto our face as soon as we go waiting in you, you know sooner think you've got some kind of a handle on who's fighting who no. and who might be the lesser of two evils than suddenly some whole other uh, unrecognized uh, uh, horrific mess or dimension to the mess becomes apparent Exactly. Is it's so difficult to get everyone even close to – even on the same book, never mind the same page, vis-à-vis what they're intervening in order to accomplish it.
1: Exactly. And the Russians play on that because the Russians play on that in the way of – because we're so confused and trying to piece together the story, they just throw this on the wall. Here's the story. It's all about terrorism. Which right. is the
0: There like, we were attacking ISIS like everyone wants us to do, and suddenly the Turks are shooting no. down our planes. It's an outrage. That's, that's the, I imagine, the, the headline message they would like everyone to right. take away from this.
1: Even though the area that they were attacking near the Turkish border is more than 100 kilometers from any Islamic state position, right? I mean, mm-hmm. that's the the element of deception. Let's All right, so let's put two things together. You have that confused situation, and then you have this myth that we can get a political resolution. Mm-hmm. Right, so the Russians come in and they say we 're going to convene an international conference, and there have been two meetings uh, in Vienna, and what the Russians and the Iranians want is they want that process to keep Assad in power in the short term. Mm-hmm and to really get a a longer-term solution that's favorable to their interest.
0: Right. So whoever replaces him, it's someone who they've known for long enough to feel like they understand, have some degree of control. Basically, they are going to be the biggest presences in the room where the conversation takes place about who comes next. Their nightmare is that he falls in some uncontrolled way, and then the government just turns out to be whatever shakes out from
1: the chaos on the ground. Which is why the political and military interventions are linked. They went in at the end of October because the Syrian military was on the point of collapse— So they prevent that from happening. And then they said, here's this political alternative. Now, the problem that the Russians have uh, is not just the Turks. While the Americans and the European powers have conceded and said, okay, Assad can stay in power for part of the transition process, which is supposed to be about 18 months, Mm -hmm. they will not go in and say, look, he can stay throughout the transition process, and then we'll see what happens. And the Russians and the Iranians are saying, no, 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 we'll have, well, sorry, the Russians are saying, we'll have elections, we'll have elections, and Assad could probably stand in the elections, and Syrians support him.
0: I, I'm, I'm not filled with confidence of the plausibility of that narrative, but presumably they have reasons for saying it that way, right? They, well, they, they want to give the veneer of credibility to whatever uh, status quo preservation operation they put in place.
1: They, I think they'd be happy with elections, because remember that Assad won a nominal election in June 2014, because they put up two token candidates against him, and because half of Syria is is there, half of the country is either displaced or they're refugees.
0: Right. So So, I mean, election is not it's not going to be you know the the, the, the Jeffersonian ideal uh, of
1: how these kinds of things might go. No, you you know you would have to get people who feel secure, who are back in their homes, who feel there's no retribution for voting. We get stacked up yet, and this is the stinger that I think you're going to enjoy. Out of all this, you and I could take apart that notion of that this political process, which is for ceasefires, a constitution, elections, that there's no way you're going to get the opposition in rebel groups or other factions like the Kurdish groups to buy into it. Yet the Americans, Secretary of State John Kerry, has set a target of getting an agreement by March. Less than uh, four and and, and from an now. agreement
0: that all of the different sides in Syria will buy into yeah. and that results in some kind of yeah. transitional process and election. Yeah. Well, he's he's never wanted for ambition, as no. Secretary Kerry. I guess you know, no. uh, may, maybe uh, maybe he's onto something. But you have to you have to. Wonder about the plausibility or indeed the sanity uh, if he believes it of that sort of objective and that sort of timetable. I
1: think you have to. I think he's tried to solve Israel and Palestine for four years and we're not exactly closer there. So now it's like, okay, here's my great project. So, how do we make a sense of all this mess? I guess is where we go next because you have Russia and Iran behind Assad, you have Turkey and Saudi Arabia, Gulf states, behind the rebels in the opposition. You have yeah. the Kurds trying to carve out their own part of the country,
0: and, and all the while, there's just so much killing and death and destruction going on that presumably the the, the levels of trust between any of these parties are at rock bottom or below. Uh, people are in a sense of absolute self preservational mortal combat of a kind that makes it punishingly difficult to get. You know, th- this idea that everybody needs to come together, to sit at a table, to come up with a negotiated solution easy to say, it is difficult. To it's not going to happen. Do
1: it's not going to happen from the top down. I mean, let me. I just give you one other fact, and then you know, <laughs> give you the magical solution, right? Mm-hmm. One other fact that that complicates this is, is that okay? From the outside, we've got the Russian narrative; they're attacking the Islamic State, and the Assad regime is fighting terrorists, etc. From inside Syria, what you see is is that the Russians have hit, according to Medecins Sans Frontieres, so an internationally recognized group, not the opposition. They've hit at least thirteen medical facilities since. Uh, the start of the bombing on September the 30th. They have hit mosques. They have hit schools. They have hit energy and water installations. So they're ripping hell out of the fabric country. There's no way you trust the Russians if they do that, which leads me to say, okay, here's the alternative. You go into Syria, and you have to start from areas on the ground where people are already in place and already nominally in control, and you have to give them short-term security. So, fine. Where Assad is holding Damascus for the moment and the big cities, fine. The Assad regime holds that, okay? Mm-hmm. We're not going to overthrow. Where the Kurds hold the northeast, the Kurds basically get de facto autonomy. Okay, fine. You can run it. Up in the northwest, where the rebels hold this area being attacked by the Russians, the Assad regime, you say, no, no, no. No more attacks. Protected area. No problem. And you basically, you can establish your own local governance, everybody then has a buy-in to at least adhering to the short term because they all want control of their specific areas. Hmm. And then you establish a possibility, and it's not guaranteed they'll succeed, but it's a possibility that they then will go to a negotiating table because they've got a buy-in because there's something they can defend, they can yeah. hold.
0: Well, in in a way not dissimilar to, to, to Secretary Kerry, I guess I'd have to say I admire your your, your optimism because I mean you know God knows there's not enough of it in the in this situation, and if one 's going to do something it probably ought to be something that one that one believes in but i just look at this. And uh, maybe in my head, I'm holding alongside this, the fact that in Parliament, as we're recording this in Britain, no. the debate is now ongoing, where David Cameron is advocating Britain should join the bombing raids against ISIS. He's, uh, according to the headlines, referring to uh, those who are opposed to this as terrorist sympathizers, or, uh, uh, or at least suggesting that they are a significant component of the coalition of opposition to it. And I think, okay, Fair enough. Stipulating that maybe somewhere out there there is a terrorist sympathiser or two. But I think the vast, vast, vast majority of people who are concerned about the idea of Britain throwing its its bombs mm. in into the, uh, the trebuchet alongside all of the others for this situation is just the, the feeling that our government does not have any clear idea of how this ends as far as they're concerned. That there is... Um, A desire to be seen to be doing something, a feeling that some other powers are doing something that they would welcome in some symbolic way, our joining them in that something. But uh, because we can't really identify who it is that we really support, swallowing whatever the downside of of that choice might be within this conflict... um, it's impossible to link the, the actions we plan to take and probably soon will be taking to a narrative that takes us to a, some realistic, achievable, plausible end state that means that we can look back and say, well, we did this bombing and achieved this result and therefore was the right thing to do. You know that in six months or a year, we will probably still be in a situation where zero of the things we'd like to see happen will have happened. Uh, a whole bunch of bombs will have been thrown. We're now in amongst it all. And it's uh, impossible to, to to look back retrospectively and give any credit to the kind of arguments that were that, that were being made by the by the prime minister.
1: I, I fully agree. I mean, what is happening? Because we don't have a plan of the kind that you're no. talking about. Is my point like, exactly?
0: And. No. and, and, and there are some actors who have no plan, uh, us, I suspect, I'm afraid, being one of them. David Cameron's closest he's come to it is a fantasy of 70,000 non-existent moderates who are apparently going to be an army on the ground uh, alongside us. And then those who do have a plan like Russia, it's a plan that's completely incommensurable with our own and that, that we don't seem to be prepared to do business with.
1: Well, let's start. I mean, so December 2nd, there's a vote tonight which will authorize British airstrikes on the Islamic State for the first time since Syria. And I totally agree with you. It is a cynical ploy. It is a sideshow. I mean, the Islamic State, brutal, horrible, evil in their actions. They are a symptom. Yeah, of what I, I the issue almost is. I almost
0: want to think it's cynical because for it to be cynical would imply that the people who are making the decision at least understand the situation uh, well enough to know that it's pointless. I think so. uh, my my fear is that they might actually believe that this is like worthwhile in some deeper sense because they just don't have their heads around the complexity of the situation and the difficulty of getting to the outcomes that they that they fantasize might be
1: possible. No, I th- no, I think I can make you happy on that count. I think they know it, 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 it will make no effect, and they're doing it as you said, just to be seen to be doing something, um, just as the French were seen to be doing something after Paris when they bombed, uh, you know, and just as the Russians are definitely doing something with their airstrikes. Um, the reason why I say that, let me just throw out, you know, is that Britain does not have the military resources to carry out any type of substantive campaign in the Islamic State anyway. Uh, hint, hint, numbers of the week. Keep listening, and you'll get a number which illustrates that. Um... The reason why this was done is the government two years ago, when it could have done something, which is it could have gone for the protected zones, the no-fly zones, after the chemical weapons attacks in 2013, Mm -hmm. Parliament blocked it at that point, right? So since then along with other reasons which make a no fly zone problematic.
0: Right. This, so, is, this is, this is a, an intervention against government forces, effectively, to keep their planes out of the sky.
1: Yeah, yeah. in other words, you, you have to... The Islamic State, you know, you can bomb the Islamic State and it will mean little to most Syrians, almost all Syrians, because the threat the, to most Syrians, um, the vast majority of deaths and destruction has come from the Assad regime's bombing their forces. And now that of their allies. And Yeah, exactly. And so you know, hitting the Islamic State is going to do nothing about that. So you have to have a protected area both to push the Islamic State back and to protect against the regime. Now, because that option in a sense the government closed it off once it was rejected two years ago they haven't gone back to really think this through and re- revisit it. Now others have. And this is where you get to who has a plan. Um, there are the Turks. Again, this is where Turkey comes back into it. For more than a year have proposed a no-fly protected area in northwest Syria. So you, if you imagine a zone which goes all the way up to like the center in the north, right? West of that is opposition-held territory. East of it is Kurdish-held territory. And the Turks have pushed this, but the Americans won't buy into it. Mm-hmm. That's why it hasn't come about. In this country, in Britain, even as we're talking about the government doing this diversion, there are two MPs who are pushing this idea of a no-fly zone. One's a conservative, Andrew Mitchell. One's from labor, Joe Cox. They've tried to develop this and so on, but they're not going to get the traction to Mm -hmm. push this front line. So I think what you're saying to me in a very nice way is, great idea, Scott, but practically in terms of practical politics, nobody's really going to come and visit this.
0: Yeah, and, and I mean, just to be clear, I'm not saying, I'm, I'm not saying that it, as in something else that is remotely satisfactory is going yep. to happen instead. I'm basically saying that this is one of those situations where I look at it and it's a sort of habit of mind, I think, sometimes when we think about politics to imagine that there is some solution that works that is uh, ultimately, after everything else is tried, going to have to be gotten around to. Yep. And maybe this just isn't one of those cases. Maybe, maybe it's just going to get worse and worse, and uh, no one is going to come to the kind of agreements that are required to improve it, and this uh, hideous meat grinder of a conflict continues to throw up consequences that are ever more terrible, even as we are fully aware of the fact that we're failing to solve it.
1: It could be, but we may get to this point through exhaustion. Um, And by that, I mean this idea of protected zones is not incompatible with part of what has been discussed at Vienna. Vienna is supposed to start off with ceasefires. Now, I'm fully in support of ceasefires. The problem is is that the Assad regime has not adhered to ceasefires in the past. Why I say it could happen through exhaustion is this. Look, um, you've got a humanitarian issue uh, in terms of refugees, but also displaced inside Syria, that is now a big drain on the international community. Mm. And if you don't do something about this crisis, that problem can to get worse, right? And it's destabilizing. Uh, the Russians have put a lot of resource into trying to prop up the Assad regime, but if they don't get success, in other words, if the rebels keep fighting them and keep pushing them, the Russians face a point where the costs are mounting this. Uh, the Iranians, who have thrown in commanders and fighters alongside the Russians, you know, they've lost more than 70 personnel officially, mm. lost more than 70 personnel uh, in the last uh, seven weeks, and the unofficial toll is probably far higher than that. So we may get to a point of exhaustion where no side is going to be able to force a victory, and that's when the idea is maybe we get ceasefires by default. You know, that's about as good as I can go, okay. get to. At this my, my, point. my
0: fingers are officially crossed. Okay. But 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 uh, the final thing I guess I want to say All before right. before we wrap up is just sure. to, look, to go back to the Russia Turkey thing as as an observation. Um, it's has interest, been interesting to see the dynamic play out where Vladimir Putin has apparently. Uh, without quite realising this, what was about to happen, buttered up against uh, somebody else who has some of the kind of nationalistic, strong man, uh, jealous of sovereignty type instincts of him uh, that he has himself. I mean, we've talked about Erdogan, uh, the, the president of Turkey, no. uh, somewhat uh, before on this podcast, friend of the podcast, uh, in terms of our, our coverage of his uh, somewhat authoritarian leaning uh, tendencies and his ideological tendencies. Um, but by, by by accounts that I've heard since all of this kicked off, the Russians have apparently been. Um teasing away at, niggling away at, playing games around NATO airspace in the north of Europe for a very long time, um, seeing how far they can push it, what will happen, because their assumption, I think, has been that NATO is in some sense reluctant to escalate, that it collectively uh, will not take steps that might lead to something like what just happened, because they don't know where it will go when Russia goes to the Baltics or, or... tweaks its nose effectively uh, and P- Putin manages to cultivate this impression that he's a strong man in international politics by behaving in a relatively reckless way in this regard he kind of does things it's like well what are you going to do about it and what he doesn't seem to have realized is that unilaterally and without consulting with any of their NATO allies the Turks might just decide well look we told you once we told you twice we told you three times stop bringing your planes up to our border, possibly over our border, stop bombing these people who are our allies across uh, uh, across the border. If you keep doing this, we are going to uh, issue unilateral consequences for it. No. And uh, I guess he attempted to call that bluff, and it turned out it wasn't a bluff. No. Um, he finds himself then in the situation of having to react to someone very publicly in a way that can't be played down, standing up to his provocations. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting to see to see him attempting to deal with that, because it doesn't happen that often that someone who has the capacity to stand up to him actually does it in quite a, a direct and aggressive way. Um, and it'll be interesting to see how that plays out in terms of his reading of, uh, uh, of, of other parts of Europe, etc., Syria, not getting any less messy anytime soon. Number of the week, where we, uh, where we attempt to bring a numeral to bear to illustrate a topical matter of the day. Uh, tell you what, why don't I go first uh, to rattle uh, the, the routine into new life uh, for, for this item? I'm going to go uh, this week with the number 99, precisely uh, uh, 99%. Uh, which is the proportion of his Facebook stock that Mark Zuckerberg, the founder and majority shareholder, or at least controlling shareholder, I'm not sure if he's a majority shareholder or not, I'll have to look into that, um, of Facebook, uh, Mark Zuckerberg uh, has announced that he is going to give away. He and his wife have just had their their first child, Priscilla Chan. Uh, In honor of this occasion, he has said that within his lifetime, he's going to use a charity that is devoted to, and I think I have this right when I say, uh, precisely, it is going to uh, seek means of advancing human potential and human equality. That is the mission of the charity he intends to use to disperse this money. I guess what I would say about this is a few things, very briefly. One. Uh, I don't think we should take it to mean that Mr. Zuckerberg is going to be losing control of Facebook any time soon, and it's also worth noting that the charity is going to be administered by himself, and therefore this is not exactly him handing the money to a bunch of people who then walk off down the street with it. Nevertheless. Uh, it would be very, very churlish of me uh, to take that observation to, to, to say that it, that it means nothing, because uh, we've talked a lot in Western society over the course of recent years about the issue of uh, not just income distribution, but wealth distribution, this idea of huge chunks of uh, money earned by someone at some point, but ultimately unearned by subsequent generations passing down uh, through inheritance from one group to another um, in a way that really turns our society into quite a hard, class-stratified society over the, uh, over the course of the long term. and. There has been a very welcome trend, in my view, towards major holders of wealth deciding to give it away to good causes during the course of their own lifetime. Warren Buffett, Bill Gates uh, are the, the the poster boys for this. Now, in my ideal world, would private individuals have control of quite such large amounts of wealth, and would where it's spent be determined by what they think a good cause is? Absolutely not. However, uh, starting as we are from here, is it preferable to me that they should be public-spirited enough to give it to causes like the charitable ones they have in mind uh, rather than simply uh, allow it to pass through the hands of generations of playboys and playgirls and, uh, to, to come? Uh, yes, I think that is a vastly preferable alternative. So two cheers for you, Mark Zuckerberg,
1: I guess is what I want to say, apropos of the number ninety-nine. I think you summarized that well, Adam. I, I just would add, I think, one very important thing uh, on the record, that both political worldview and EA worldview are entirely dedicated to human advancement, human progress, and human equality. <laughs> just to say that those goals are out there. If by any chance they coincide with those of Mr. Zuckerberg, you can get in contact with us via Facebook. Yeah, have, ha-
0: have your people call out people, yes, and we'll be happy to initiate a dialogue. Scott, it. hit me with a number, if you
1: will. I uh, will. I'm going to. Uh, I don't have a really ambitious number this week because it, it it's not a very ambitious story. I'm afraid it is the number eight. The number eight is the number of frontline British Tornado jet fighters that are positioned in the Middle East. And Mediterranean. That's right. On the day that Parliament is voting, as we mentioned, to sanction British airstrikes against the Islamic State, and we assume they will support that.
0: Hmm. I think it's safe to say Mr. Cameron wouldn't be having the vote unless he was similarly confident.
1: Prime Minister Cameron will be supervising an entire British air force of eight fighter jets to take on the Islamic State. Now,
0: the, 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 the phrase uh, uh, something's better than nothing may be being brought to its, uh, uh, its, its point of maximum stretch by those numbers, I think.
1: The phrase a pea shooter in a hurricane might come <laughs> to mind as well. Um, now, I, I'm sure that the prime minister and his folks can respond. But we have 40, five times eight, 40 typhoon. <laughs>
0: Top points for uh, numerical knowledge. Thank
1: technology. you. 40 Typhoon uh, fighter jets that are available, but the Typhoon, unfortunately, can carry a a sum total of zero high-precision missiles. It's not equipped for the type of attacks that you want to carry out to avoid civilian casualties. So
0: it is safe to say that even if Mr. Cameron gets the vote that he fully expects to get, the British contribution may be less than decisive to this particular conflict. Am I reading you correctly in that, in, in that message, Scott?
1: Now I'm sure that as Harold Macmillan, Harold Macmillan, I'm sure that as Harold Macmillan, that renowned Prime Minister of days past, said that Britain always provides brain to other people's brawn, such as the Americans. So I'm sure that those eight Tornado jets can support a U.S. effort against the Islamic State. Yeah,
0: I, I fear that an, a very large delivery of brain indeed might well be required uh, <laughs> to be thought due compensation.
1: Well, I, I think we've,
0: uh, we've set the world to rights in as much as we're likely to at least. Thank you very much. Uh, you can follow Political Worldview on Twitter at Poll Worldview. But more than that, I am delighted to be able to announce that we now also have a show page on Facebook. You can find us there at facebook.com slash pollworldview. Please come there and like us, and we'll be posting links related to our discussions there, as well as updates about the show. You can uh, comment and give us feedback, etc. If you listen to us on SoundCloud or iTunes, please subscribe to us there free, and uh, if you're feeling especially enthusiastic, please give us a rating or a review, because that's really helpful, and it helps others to discover the show. We appreciate it indeed. I'm Adam Quinn. Adam quinn 161 on facebook if you're looking for me there i'm at adam james quinn on twitter scott where can people find you should they be so inclined
1: dear listeners and p.s mr zuckerberg i can be found at EAWorldview.com and on twitter at scott lucas underscore ea our producer
0: is conor mckenna and you've been listening to us as always from the political science and international studies department at the university of birmingham england we'll be back next week with uh, the band all back together as a threesome uh, we very much hope you will be here too